0: Well, good morning, church. Man, it's so good to see you here. You overcame so many obstacles to get here this morning. I mean, you had spring forward, spring break, coronavirus, and that's why you got donuts. All right? Uh, You you deserve it. I'm glad. I hope you enjoyed one. Uh, There might be some on your way out if you you didn't get one. And uh, don't worry, I'm sure plenty of children sneezed on those. And... uh, but you're welcome to as many as you'd like. Uh, feel free to do that. No, uh, you know I, know, I know some of you are afraid of the coronavirus stuff. I want you to know we do have a plan for what we'll do if we need to kind of uh, shut it down and do whatever the government tells us that we need to do. And uh, we'll communicate that with you for sure when, that, when and if that time comes. I'll tell you that our plan starts with not getting it. It's a good plan, right? Okay, yeah, that's a, I thought that was good. Okay, good. Hey, every good story starts with once upon a time, doesn't it? I mean, every good fairy tale starts with once upon a time, but there's a song that starts with once upon a time that ends up not so good. Uh, You know, it's that song that says, once upon a time, I was falling in love, but now I'm only falling apart. You've heard that song before. Uh, Bonnie Tyler's 1983 hit, Total Eclipse of the Heart. You know, she she felt this once upon a time love, and then it all of a sudden turned, and there was nothing that she could do. It was a total eclipse of the heart. And we can all relate to that, which is why that song will forever stay in karaoke decks uh, around the world. Because we all understand that, that, that part of a relationship where we felt this initial connection. We felt like sparks were flying. We felt like things were going well. We felt the, the warmth of that relationship. But then all of a sudden, something happened and there, there was, there was an obstruction. Something came between us and someone else. And there, there was an eclipse of that, that relationship. And that's why maybe you've even been in one of those relationships, and you felt that once upon a time love and connection with a friend or even a family member or or certainly a significant other, and you felt that obstruction come between you and them, and maybe you pled or the other one was pleading, turn around, you know? Come, Come back, come back. You want that connection established. You, you want it reestablished. But sometimes you feel like there's nothing you can do. It's a total eclipse of the heart. And you feel like the love has gone cold. That, that connection has gone cold. You, you see, that's a, the, the eclipse idea is a, a, actually a wonderful metaphor for what oftentimes happens in our relationships, because we've all felt that, where we felt the connection, but now we all of a sudden feel isolated from that other person. You see, at its very basic definition, an eclipse is, a, is a, basically a separation of heavenly bodies by an obstruction. Now you you and, and I most relate to like a solar eclipse, right? You, you, we've even seen those before where the moon goes between the sun and the earth, and it obscures the sun's light, it obscures the sun's warmth. There's an obstruction. We lose our connection with the sun. So that's why it's a great metaphor for what we oftentimes experience in our relationships. But if this happens in a relationship, especially if it has to do with a significant other, boyfriend, girlfriend, et cetera, something like that, then, then the obvious uh, kind of thing that a friend tells you is, don't worry, there are more fish in the sea, you know? And, and you go, okay, you know, there, there are more fish in the sea, you're, you're right, and, and, and so you kind of you get over it eventually. It might be hard, but you eventually get over it, and you kind of move on. But what if that total eclipse of the heart happens with God, because there are no more gods in the sea. There's no one else that you can go, okay, you're right. I'll get over that and move on to someone else because there's no one like him. And so if you feel like there's some sort of obstruction between you and him, then what do you do? And we've all been there where you feel like there's been an isolation, that you're in isolation away from God. And you feel like he has left you alone. And you're wondering, God, why aren't you answering my prayers? I am praying to you every day. I am praying to you every hour, every minute. And it's, he's not only not listening to you, he's not responding to you. You're getting nothing back. And you feel like you have been left alone and you don't feel the warmth of walking with him. You don't see him as the light of your life. You don't see a light for your path, a light for your feet, a light to follow him in in, in what I know you sincerely want to do. And you felt that total eclipse of the heart of God with you, where you want it, you want that deep connection with him, yet you feel like it's just not there, it's not happening. And the question that we all ask when we feel that is, why? why? Well, if you've ever been there, if you felt isolated, if you felt alone, and you've asked the question, why, then you're in good company because Jesus asked the same question. And so if you would open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27 We're gonna be in verses 45 to 49. If you're opening one of the Blue Bibles, it's page 834. You'll also need a copy of your sermon notes because there are a couple things on your sermon notes that aren't gonna come up on the screens that I want you to see uh, yourself. Hello to those of you at, uh, on our internet campus. I'm glad you're streaming and glad you chose to uh, join with the Christ Chapel family, uh, no matter where you are. Hopefully you're on spring break or something, doing something fun. But we're gonna continue our series on the seven words from the cross. And remember, these are seven phrases. They're not just one word statements, but we've pulled out one word that kind of um, gives you a subject uh, of the phrase. And we've already been through the first three phrases of Jesus from the cross. And the first one was, "Father, forgive them. they know not what they do." The second one was to the criminal on the cross beside Jesus, and he said, "Today you will be with me in paradise." And then the last one that we did, the third one Dr. Bailey talked about how he described to his mother, "Mother, here's your son, John's son, here's your mother." and he reestablished the the relationships, and he reformed a new family in him, spiritual relationships. And now we're gonna move into our fourth statement from the cross, but just, this this is kind of an aside. What is amazing to me, and we talked about how excruciating the the cross was. In fact, excruciating is where, it comes from the word crucifixion. Um, And we talked about how painful that is, and the first three statements that we get from Jesus on the cross are all about other people. I, I, just, I just have to point that out. I mean, we, we just sang wonderful, merciful Savior. I mean, what a Savior we have. That the first three things he says are all about other people. He came with us in mind. He came with you on his mind, to restore sinners back to a holy God. And so the first three statements are all about other people. Now we turn, and this is the first statement that we get about Jesus, and it's the fourth statement from the cross. So just follow along with me. It's Matthew chapter 27, we'll begin in verse 45. It says, now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land, until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani? That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders, they, they heard it and said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge filled with its, its sour wine and he, and he put it on a reed and he gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And we're going to stop there for our time today. So one of the interesting things as we look at Matthew's account of this uh, statement from the cross is it's the only one that Matthew records. This is the only statement that Matthew records. And I think... Cody's opinion, that it's because this is in contrast with the way that the gospel of Matthew begins. Now remember, Matthew begins with the genealogy, it goes through all of those, but then basically one of the opening scenes that we get in Matthew's gospel is this great light, this wonderful star that is drawing wise men to Jesus the Savior. That's how the gospel starts out the supernatural light that points people to him who know that they, there's something divine about this, this child. Now, at the end of Matthew's gospel, we have the exact opposite. You see, what we have here at the end is the light of the world being darkened by sin, by the sin of the world on the cross where we have the supernatural light drawing people, now we have a supernatural darkness trying to extinguish the light of the world. If you look back at verse 45, as Matthew records, he says, now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. Now I have to explain what that means. Jesus was put on the cross about 9 a.m. in the morning. And this says that about the the sixth hour, there was darkness, which would have been noon. At noon, darkness falls on the earth. Now, this is obviously a supernatural darkness. So, we get the first three statements of Jesus from the cross between 9 a.m. and noon. And now it says the supernatural darkness falls on the earth. From noon until 3 p.m. This was the time, obviously, when it would have been the brightest. I mean, what's the brightest time of, of day? The sun is at its highest at noon. That's when the sun is brightest. And now, when the sun is supposed to be shining bright, I think a metaphor for the light of the world, now the scene is set and it's complete darkness, utter darkness across the land. And I have to tell you that, um, to be very specific to the language, that this darkness seems to, as, as I've studied it, seems to fall on the land, literally just the surrounding context there. There are Roman historians who talk about this time, so this is verified, this isn't just Matthew's account. But it's not across the entire earth. The word that is used here is the land, the general region that is there. So the, the setting is complete and utter darkness, which we don't know anything about. I mean, if you think about it, we have no concept of, of utter darkness outside. I mean, even if you've been up and you've seen a solar eclipse, there's still light coming around uh, the moon. Even if you go out to, to the country and you get away from the city lights, you still have starlight I mean, we, we don't know what complete and utter darkness is. And people have tried to come up with theories for what was going on then to explain this, this darkness, that maybe it was a dust storm. Dust storms don't create darkness. I mean, it certainly makes things dirty, but it doesn't create darkness. People have thought maybe it was a solar eclipse that happened, but solar eclipses don't actually Uh, One researcher did research on this specific time that if a solar eclipse had happened, it wouldn't have lasted for more than one minute and 17 seconds. And this is three hours that this darkness settles over the scene of the crucifixion. You see, what I think is going on here is that this, this darkness, this sadness that settles on the scene of the crucifixion is the darkness that represents judgment and the absence of God throughout Scripture. Darkness has always represented God's judgment and, and almost absence throughout Scripture. And I've put this on your sermon notes so that you can uh, see uh, Some of the scriptures that I point to where where I get this, Uh, if you think about 1 John 1, 1 John 1 talks a lot about walking in the light, uh, but it describes God as light. 1 John 1, 5, God is light. John 8, 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. If you go to 2 Peter 2, 4, darkness is associated with the rebellious angel's judgment, and actually, I think that's what's going on at the beginning of Genesis when it says chaos is hovering over the waters, that there was a rebellion in heaven, as we, as we know from other scriptures. Jesus cast down a third of the angels into darkness and in judgment. And what is the first thing that God creates? Light. Let there be light. Uh, don't let that be lost on you. When, Jesus, when, Jesus, when God shows up, when Jesus shows up, there's light because darkness represents judgment and absence of him. And then in Exodus chapter 10, verses 22 and 23, darkness was the ninth plague before the 10th plague, which was the Passover, which ultimately the Passover led to freedom for God's people out of slavery, which there, there are a lot of parallels of what's going on right now. The crucifixion was going on during the Passover. This was a Passover feast, a time when all of Israel is coming to Jerusalem to celebrate that God has, God has delivered his people from slavery. He's delivered them out of Egypt so that they could follow him and be his own. They are celebrating freedom that they have the freedom that God provided, but before he provided that in Passover, back in Egypt, in Exodus, there was darkness. I mean, do you see the parallels? What's interesting, too, is that Passover is based on a lunar calendar, and so Passover is always during a full moon. So there's no way that it could have been completely dark at this time unless God had wanted it to be that way. And darkness settles over the scene of the cross during the Passover, right before the Passover lamb was to be slain, to set God's people free from their slavery to sin. The parallels are uncanny here to what was going on in Egypt. In fact, in Amos Chapter eight, verse nine and 10, this will come up on the screen. I wanted to show you this passage because Jesus is fulfilling this prophecy, which was about 750 years before the crucifixion. It says, on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. And I will turn your feasts, your Passover feasts that you're celebrating into morning. And I will make it like the morning for an only son, and the end of it like a bitter day. I don't know of a better description of what was going on at that day when darkness settled on the cross. You see, as darkness covered the land, the son was forsaken by the father in order to pay for our sin. As darkness covered the land, the Son was forsaken by the Father to pay for our sin. So we have three hours. Jesus is, Jesus is hanging on the cross at 9 a.m. We have three statements in three hours. Then darkness comes at noon, and we have nothing, stillness, pitch black for three hours. Nothing, nothing. Probably the only light that was around the cross at that time was were, were torches, fire that they would have had to have light just to, to just to see anything. And so for three hours we have this, this darkness. I, I mean, it's just like this I, the way I imagine it is just like this black hole, this abyss, this emptiness that's around the cross. At this time and then he says in verse 46 and about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice the word for loud voice is, is the Greek word mega which is where we get our our word megaphone that that amplifies sound and it says that Jesus cried out in, in a mega voice in fact probably a better translation of cried out is Jesus shrieked or screamed. Now, we, we've talked about how much energy it takes to, for someone to, to say anything from the cross, how he would have to push up off of his feet just to breathe. And so you can imagine how faint his, his statements were, much, much less his breath. And he's been on the cross now for six hours and for three hours, from, from noon to three, everybody's watching this scene. I think that they knew that this darkness had something to do with the one that they were crucifying. And they just don't know what's gonna happen. What is gonna happen? What is gonna happen? And so they're all waiting in anticipation to watch. And it's just stillness, silence, darkness. And then all of a sudden, this shriek just comes out, this scream, this mega loud voice in the darkness that says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus asks, why am I isolated? Why am I forsaken? It's a piercing question a piercing question that we have all asked in the midst of our own darkness. You know, when we go through sad times, hard times, that's how people describe it. If you've ever gone through or struggled with depression or anything like that, you, you, we call it a darkness. It is a, and you say, I've been through a dark time. Or if you've, you've been grieving for a while, I'm in a dark place. Darkness is associated with sadness, even in how we, we talk about it. And in the midst of this darkness, Jesus is asking the same question that we ask. God, why does it feel like you've left me alone? Why am I forsaken? Now, this term forsaken, everything, uh, this entire statement hinges on what forsaken means. And the, the literal word forsaken means to abandon, to leave alone, to leave in dire straits, In fact, it almost has the implication that someone could step in and help, but doesn't. They have the ability to, but choose not to. They withhold. They stand back. They forsake an action or a person. That's what the literal word forsaken means. Now, there are different theories as to what Jesus is saying when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The first is that he is quoting Psalm 22, which actually this is a quote of Psalm 22, which I'll talk more about in just a moment. But some are saying that he quotes Psalm 22 because he's trying to comfort himself. And so he actually quotes the entire Psalm to comfort himself, uh, you know, there's, there's like 15, 16 verses in Psalm 22. There's a bunch of verses that he's just kind of comforting himself and the application that they make is, hey, when you struggle, you know, quote scripture, which you definitely should do. But that's not, Cody's opinion, that's not what's going on here because I don't think that's, that comes out. If he's comforting himself, I don't think that comes out as a loud shriek with a mega voice. He's not quoting this to just comfort himself. Another theory that is there, some commentators say that Jesus wasn't actually forsaken, he just feels forsaken. And all he's talking about is just expressing his feelings. And I certainly believe that's true. Jesus definitely feels forsaken. He definitely feels isolated at this time. But I don't think it's restricted to just his feelings. I think there's a literal sense in which she is forsaken. Now, we get to, okay, Cody, then what does that mean? Well, our executive pastor, Bill Egner, in, in different times, he, he, in different conversations, he says, Cody, sometimes it's easier to define what something isn't rather than what it is. And so there's some sort of mysterious forsakenness that is going on here. And I don't exactly know how to describe it to you, but I'd rather just describe what it isn't and tell you that it's inside there. I've given you a visual picture on your sermon notes to kind of represent what what I'm talking about. So what I wanna do is define what it isn't. Those are the things outside of the word forsaken. And forsaken, the, the meaning is something inside those bounds. So let me bound what it means when Jesus says, why are you forsaking me? The first one on the top is Jesus was made to be sin. We know that from second Corinthians chapter five, verse 21, Paul says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. And the way I learned it was in Christ that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So God made him who knew no sin. He had never sniffed sin. He had never, he had never thought about doing that. He was tempted in every way, but he never took one tiny inch of a step towards sin. And now all of a sudden he is made sin on our behalf. I think he was forsaken. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, we, we use the phrase all the time, going zero to 60. Uh, this is the epitome of going zero to 60. Going from knowing no sin to now being made sin for our sake. To pay for our sin. So he was, he was made sin on our behalf, for our sake. Uh, the, the other thing down at the bottom of that box is that he prayed that this cup would pass. If you remember in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus is praying, he says, Father, man, can you let this cup pass? And what is he talking about, this cup? It, it's the wrath of God that would be poured out on him for our sin because God is holy and righteous and just. And the wages of sin is death. And he was gonna take on the sins of the world, past, present, and future. And he says, if there's any way that this cup could pass, but not my will, but thy will be done. Do you remember what happens when he prays this prayer? It's so, He is in such anguish that he is sweating drops of blood. It's so painful for him to think about the wrath of God that's gonna be poured out on him who has made sin on our behalf that he's bleeding as he prays out of his pores. So he prays that this cup would pass. There's something going on there that he is so terrified of in a sense that he says, I don't want that. Yet, on either other side of the box, on the right or the left, first, he still maintains his personhood. That at the time when he's hanging on the cross, where he's made sin on our behalf, where he's taking on the wrath of God to pay the penalty for our sin, because that's what our sin deserves, that he still maintains his personhood. He's still 100% God. He's still 100% man. He doesn't instantaneously lose his deity or, you know, become completely man and and not God. He's still Jesus, the perfect God man at that time. And not only does he maintain his personhood, that's a boundary, but the other boundary is he still maintains his relationship with the father. I mean, he still says, my God, He's still connected. Jesus didn't lose his spot in the Trinity at this time. It wasn't like God removed him, like he could remove himself. Jesus didn't lose his essence. He didn't lose his substance. He didn't lose his position at this time. So he's still connected to the Father. He's still a part of the triune God at this time. So you have those boundary conditions. He's made sin, he prays this cup would pass, he maintains his personhood, he maintains his relationship. And so what does it mean that he's forsaken? I don't know. But it's pretty awful. It's the most terrible thing that could ever happen to a person on this earth. Growing up in the country, I grew up in small town Texas in the country, there were, there were water wells that you, you would come across. And I don't know if it's just a little boy thing or, or whatnot, but every time I came across a water well, I would always grab a rock and you know, I'd wanna throw it in, you know, just to hear it splash. And, and you know, as long as it took to splash, you'd know how deep that well was. What Jesus took on when he took on the sin of the world, our sin was so deep, it's like throwing a rock in a well and never hearing it splash. And it just keeps going and going and going. And that's what's placed on Jesus on the cross. And so, can I exactly tell you what it means that he was forsaken? No, but I can feel it. I can feel a sense of it. And I think that's why, that's one of the reasons why he quotes Psalm 22. If you look at Psalm 22, verse one, it'll come up on the screen. David, a thousand years prior to Christ, prays, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? And if you read the rest of that Psalm, I mean, it's like a blueprint of what Jesus was experiencing on the cross. He, he says that, his, that people are mocking him, that his bones are out of joint, that his tongue sticks to his jaws, which we'll talk about um, I thirst, his statement next week. It says they have pierced my hands and my feet, they divide my garments. Everything is like a, a direct fulfillment of what is happening to Jesus on the cross. And so what is David talking about a 1,000 years prior? I think David is talking about what he feels. That that stuff didn't happen to David. David didn't literally have his hands and feet pierced. He He wasn't literally forsaken by God, but he certainly felt that way, which we can all relate to in a sense. And the reason why I think Jesus is quoting verse one of Psalm 22 is because he's pointing back to this. And he's saying, David and humankind, what you felt, I am literally taking on I am taking this on so that you will never ever be forsaken you see Jesus was isolated for the sake of your sin and my sin so that you never have to be isolated from him he's going to take on you you feel like you like you're being mocked And you feel like you're being isolated, like, God, why won't you save me? Why won't you listen to that? And he goes, I'm gonna take that on. I know you might feel that way, but that's never gonna happen to you. I'll take it on. In fact, Isaiah chapter 53 says, "'Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. "'Yet we esteem him, stricken, smitten by God, "'and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions, "'he was crushed for our iniquities.'" Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. You see, Jesus removed that obstruction between us and the heart of God called sin. That's what obstructs us from a holy God all the time. And when he bore our sin, he took it away. He removed the obstruction so that we would have direct access to the heart of God so that we would never be forsaken. In fact, now we have the promise in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, that he says, I will never leave you, and I will never forsake you. You see, Jesus was forsaken, so you would never have to be, so that you can live with the promise that... No matter how you feel, you're never forsaken, why? Because of what he took on when he was forsaken for your sin. so let me give you some words to live by. First, don't isolate yourself from the one was is isolated for your sin. Jesus wanted to pay for it all, once and for all. And oftentimes, if we don't feel a connection with the Father, It's oftentimes because we've left, not the other way around. You know, the story of the prodigal son. The father stays at home. You're welcome to stay at home. It's just oftentimes we run out looking for something better. Don't isolate yourself, don't run off from the one who's paid it all so that you would never be isolated from him. Second, don't correlate the level of God's love for you with the circumstances you're experiencing. This might be one of the most important points, Christian. And it's really the reason why I chose the word isolation. Because let me be clear again: ontologically, Jesus was not isolated from the Father at this time when he was forsaken. He's still a part of the Trinity. But so often, we feel isolated from God, even though we have the promise that he will never leave us nor forsake us. And because we feel that way, we let our feelings inform our faith. And we say, God, because I feel isolated from you, you must be far away from me. And this is where we need to go the other way around, Christian your entire life you will need to do this every single day. Your faith will need to inform your feelings and not the other way around. Because you may feel isolated and you need to come back to this and go, he has done everything in the world that needed to happen so that you would never be isolated from him. I understand that you might feel that way. I understand that you might be going through a dark time. I understand that you feel lonely and isolated, but you're not isolated from him. It's just not true. Let your faith inform your feelings and not the other way around, no matter your circumstances. I love what Romans eight thirty-five says. Uh, and I, I saw this verse in a new way. I love it. it. It says, who shall separate us from the love of God? He asked a who question. Who can separate you from the love of God? And then he goes into the, these circumstances. He said, shall tribulation, shall distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? He goes through all these circumstances that we think when we go through circumstantial hard times that we've been isolated from him. And he said, it's You're looking at it as a what question that separates us from God. It's not a what, it's a who. And no one can separate you from the love of God. No one. Don't look at your life as a what, a circumstance. Look at it as a who and what he's paid for you. And then finally, don't remain isolated in sin from God or others, but bring your darkness into the light. First John 1.5, I told you, says God is light. Uh, First John 1.7, as he's carrying that theme of the light, he talks about walking in the truth and walking in the light, and he concludes that section in uh, chapter one, verse nine, where he says, therefore, confess your sins. You see, when we sin, we hide ourselves and we isolate ourselves from God. We run away and we stay in this darkness and in this heaviness. And the only way that we can have that removed from us is if we confess our sins. He's chasing after you. He wants you to live in the light. He wants to bring the warmth of his relationship with you. Would you confess your sins? Because he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness so that you don't have to live in the dark. You don't have to live with an eclipse of the heart. There's no eclipse of God's heart. He's removed the obstruction. You have direct access to him. And that's what we're gonna do right now. I'm gonna give you an opportunity to pray. So if you would, bow your heads, and I just wanna lead you through just a a couple of quick things to pray so that you can connect with the one, so that you don't remain isolated from him any longer. Why don't you begin by just saying, God, I wanna be connected to you. Are there circumstances going on in your life right now that you've allowed to inform your faith? Feelings that you say, Well, God, you must not love me. You must not care for me. You must not want to be close to me. Folks, confess that to Him. It's not true. Finally confess any sin to him. Just say, God forgive me. You've done everything so that I won't be isolated from you. Confess it. Come into the warmth of his light, the warmth of his love. Well, God, we thank you that after you are forsaken, Lord, no one will ever have to genuinely ask you that question because we live in the promise that you will never leave us nor forsake us. Thank you for Jesus. Amen.